So we're continuing our walk through this letter uh, written from Paul, uh, sitting in a rather um, horrible uh, Roman cell somewhere, uh, imprisoned for his faith, and writing to one of the churches that he helped uh, to found, uh, that he told about Jesus, and uh, probably gathered in several people's homes around the ancient city of Ephesus. Now, to make it easier to read these letters, we divide them into chapters and verses. But of course, this was simply uh, written on um, whatever the uh, paper they used in those days was, papyrus or whatever, uh, as, a, as a roll, and it was simply read as a letter. And rather than everybody having a copy sitting in front of them, open on their laps, it would have been somebody standing at the front and reading out uh, what we call these six chapters of Ephesians all in one go. And I guess they'd have gone back to it again and again and maybe read out particular parts um, But the first time they heard it, they'd have heard it as a whole, as a letter. And they'd have probably therefore picked up that the letter sort of has two halves to it. What we call chapters 1, 2, and 3, and what we call chapters 4, 5, and 6. And in the first three chapters of the letter, um, Paul has basically tried to sort of cash out for them what God has done for them. What God has done for them. He said to them, you were once um, distant from God. You were once excluded from God's people. You were once on the outside looking in. You were once, uh, we might put it in more colloquial terms, you were once in real trouble. You were once heading over a cliff. You were once um, condemned. And now, in Jesus Christ, because of his life for you, because of his death in your place, because of his new life bought for you, you now get to be on the inside. You get to belong. You get to be forgiven. You get to know how well you're loved. This is God's gift to you. This is what it looks like to become a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Somebody who has their sin forgiven, their life turned around, darkness replaced with light, a new start. Somebody who didn't belong but does now belong. Not, says Paul, because of what you've done, All, says Paul, because of what Jesus has done for you. But the second half of the letter, it's almost as if in cashing out this incredible gift, Paul has made himself stand back and go, well, so what? What does it look like then in real everyday life to live this Christian life? What does it look like for you and me, for his first readers to be on the receiving end of grace, of God's loving forgiveness, of this new life? Should it make a difference? Is it different to be a follower of Jesus than not to be? Does life, is life meant to have a different flavour? Actually, to use his language here, should life have a different smell, a different fragrance about it? And we've begun over the last couple of weeks to unpack a little bit, a little bit of what Paul um, is saying there. And as we come to this little bit of chapter 5, it seems to me that it's worth sort of just naming out loud the different angles we might be coming at this from. For some of us, our history before coming towards uh, a real and living faith for the first time has maybe come from a, a place where religion and maybe our own experience has been identified with a very harsh obedience rule that religion that we experienced before, maybe uh, what we're experiencing today, was about a set of rules and a very set, a set of sort of harsh punishments, uh, a sense of guilt. Uh, it's very interesting that 
Um, people talk about Catholic guilt, but they also talk about the Protestant work ethic, and I think the two are much more connected than you might imagine. On both wings of the Christian church, we're quite capable of doing the guilt thing, that religion becomes about trying to get it right, keeping our noses clean, trying to be good enough for God. What we find an awful lot happens is that actually as we begin to discover the nature of grace, that being a follower of Jesus isn't about trying to be good enough for God, working hard enough, praying enough, being the right sort of person. We can come at this question, well, what therefore should life look like as a Christian from the angle of, well, I don't want it to look anything like this thing over here that I'm departing from, that I'm, that I'm abandoning, that I'm running away from. I don't want it to feel like guilt and duty. I, I don't want it to be about a, a sort of a heavy obedience. And so for those of us coming from that angle, there's a sense of wanting to kick over the traces and saying, hey, it's about grace. It's about being forgiven. It doesn't really matter anymore, and I'm going I'm to show it. I'm going to live the way I please, because I know, isn't it wonderful? I'm forgiven. That's one angle we can come at it from. There's another angle, I guess, that we can come from if we've never had that sense of sort of uh, what we've identified as sort of an oppressive obedience landed on our shoulders. Where we look at this question of lifestyle and go, well, you know, I, I, I never really felt it was about trying to be good anyway. Surely religion and faith, spirituality should be about just about love and, and being, uh, loving others and, and loving God and knowing that you're loved, knowing you're forgiven. There's a sense of, well, you know, I found fulfillment here. I, I have a sense of belonging. And actually, this language that Paul seems to be using here, I mean, I don't know whether you winced as Rachel was reading it, not because of the way she read it, it was beautifully read, but I don't know whether you winced as you heard these words, because actually they sound really heavy. And whether you're coming from a background where this just takes you back and you think, well, I've I've, I've, I've escaped this sort of religious guilt, or whether you're coming from a perspective of thinking, well, spirituality shouldn't be about this stuff anyway, it should be about feeling right and feeling that you belong. I wonder how verse 3 onwards made you feel. Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. It's pretty heavy stuff. It doesn't feel very cheerful stuff. I, I joked with the, the, uh, the team as we were meeting before the service um, about, you know, I've got the very cheerful subject of sin this morning, and we all, you know, laughed. But it does feel a heavy thing. So why on earth, after the really good news of chapters 1 to 3, does Paul dive in in chapters 4, 5, and 6 in somehow saying, you mustn't miss what sin really is, and you must choose to live a life that flees in the other direction? Why would he do that? When he's talking about being loved by God, being forgiven by God, belonging to God's family, why does he suddenly feel like he flips I want to suggest that it has to do with finding both a proper sense of gratitude and appreciation for what Jesus has done, and also giving a right motivation for living a life that is shaped by that grace and by the love of Jesus. 
Both a right appreciation of what Jesus has done for us and a right motivation for how we live in the light of it. A right appreciation, because unless we realise the predicament that we were in, we will not even begin to be able to contemplate what a remarkable thing that Jesus did for us in living and dying and rising for us. And a right motivation, because we're right. It cannot be, and Paul would have none of this, that the way to live a Christian life is out of guilt or out of duty or out of fear. There is a different motivation. Well, there's at least three things that Paul says about what we would call sin. I would say the best way to remember what sin means is that it's a little word, but it has a big I in the middle of it. A big I. It's a life lived with me at the centre of it. It's a life lived where I put myself first, what I want, what I feel, what I think, what I'm going to do. And what Paul does here is to cash out a little bit of what that looks like, what it effectively does, its power, and the predicament it puts us in. Now, in terms of what it looks like, uh, the best place to look is is verse 5. Of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolatry, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Immoral and impure are words that have to do with um, uh, sex and sexuality. The side of life that is to do with how we live out that part of us that is sexual. Both privately and in our thought life and towards other people. Interestingly enough, the the other action that he puts alongside it is greed. It's interesting what he chooses. Sexual impropriety on this side. Greed. Wanting more and more and more on this side. It's interesting, if you look at the history of the church down through the ages, we've tended at different points in our history to swing from one to the other in terms of what we think is the big thing. There are some churches today that seem to be able to talk about nothing but sex and sexual sin. But maybe are a little bit comfortable with wealth and property and greed. There are plenty of churches that are very strong on actually saying that greed is a huge sin and on the need to fight for justice and for social equality, but are maybe very comfortable with just, well, what people do in their private time is entirely up to them. Actually, Paul would simply say they're both examples of the spread of a life lived outside of God's commands, outside of God's best for us. That's a picture of sin. The Bible says that God wants the very best for the people that he's made. He's made you. He's made me. He knows what's best for us. He loves us. He wants us to live a life the way that we were designed to live. And sin is simply when we step outside of the life that God wants for us. So Paul says whether you're looking at the way we express ourselves sexually, whether we're looking at the way that we have our attitude to money and possessions, and everything in between... Sin has this incredible spread. It's a hugely, uh, huge variety. But he doesn't just talk about stuff we do. He really wants to hammer the message home. And so he also looks on the inside, this question of what he calls idolatry. And idolatry, if you like, is Paul's catch-all term for all sin. Because being an idolater is not actually simply setting up an idol in your home and having a little shrine. 
Idolatry is simply allowing anything to take the place that God is meant to have. And usually our idols are good things in themselves. Almost always. Our idol might be our job, our career, our our ambition, our need to succeed. It's a good thing in itself, but it becomes an idol when we put it beyond and above anything, anyone, and even God. Our families, our relationships, our place in the community, our need to be needed, the view others have of us, good things in themselves. But when they come a notch above even God's love for us and our love for him, they become an idol. And the Bible says, and we know it in our own experience, just how easily we, all of us, become idolaters. People who put something before God. In the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? We discover that in his life, it was possessions, money. And if you want a litmus test to dip into your own life, to dip into my life. Say, well, where am I most in danger of becoming an idolater? It's a very simple question. What would I struggle with the most to give up, to have less of, if God asked me to? The place that Paul wants us to start in appreciating what Jesus has done for us and his forgiveness for us because of the cross and in finding a motivation to live a Jesus-shaped life, is firstly then to understand the incredible, if you like, spread of sin. It's many varieties and nature. It's not simply, can I see something on this list of Ten Commandments that I do wrong? It's the life that is lived with me at the centre of it. Whether to do with the way I express my sexuality, the way, the attitude I have to money, or for that matter, the attitude I have to anything that comes above God. And Paul simply wants to say to us, you need to recognise that sin is at work in your life and at my life. However good we think we are, it has a spread through us. There's something, though, even harder that he says, this secondly. Verse 8. He doesn't say, you were once, because of that sin, in darkness. You notice that he says, you were once darkness. You were Darkness. Not just you were in darkness, you were darkness. I think this is the hardest thing the Bible says to any human being. It says that we are so thoroughly uh, crooked, bent out of shape, leaning inwards, tucked inwards on ourselves. This I at the centre of our lives is so thoroughly part of us that we are darkness without Jesus. Now, we struggle with that. That sounds very harsh. That sounds very negative about human beings. Something's really struck me um, over the years, and I've read it again and again, about an interview. Um, It's been in the news again quite recently, because the guy um, who did this interview, um, a chap called Mike Wallace, has just died um, in the States. He was a very, very famous um, television interviewer, died in his 90s quite recently. And... um, uh, he interviewed um, a, a very remarkable man, man um, whose name I probably won't pronounce correctly, called Yehiel Dinur, uh, who was a writer um, and uh, a Jewish man who was one of um, those who survived the Holocaust and had been in a concentration camp and had experienced and seen terrible things uh, during the Second World War at the hands of the Nazis. 
And uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the uh, Nazi architects of the Holocaust, was um, uh, uh, put on trial. And uh, this man, Yehiel Dineur, was called as a material witness uh, at the trial. And there's film footage of when Dineur comes into the courtroom and he sees Eichmann in his glass booth over to one side. And as he comes in, Dineur immediately breaks down. He falls to the ground, sobbing, and he has to be helped out of the courtroom. Now, at the time, of course, everybody was, rightly, hugely sympathetic. Everybody just assumed, I say just, uh, that, that word doesn't belong in that sentence, everybody assumed that what had happened was that seeing Eichmann had brought back to him the terrors that he'd endured, the terrible things that had happened to his family, most of whom had been killed, the things that he'd seen. The one person with the courage to ask him what happened was this chap, Mike Wallace. Wallace, um, I, I think it was a, an interview in the 60s, um, showed Deneur the tape of him falling down and asked him the question maybe people had thought but not asked. What was going on? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? What happened? Were you overwhelmed by the painful memories? Were you overwhelmed with hatred? What was going on? And Deneur said no. Had said something that probably shocked Mike Wallace and would shock most people living in Western Europe today. What he said was that he was overcome by the realisation that Eichmann was not some demon, but was an ordinary human being. He said this, When I saw him, I was afraid of myself. I saw that I am capable to do this, exactly like he. He said, Eichmann is in all of us. It's an astonishing thing to hear, and it's one of the most remarkable interviews you'll ever read or watch. I was afraid about myself. And what I think Deneur has absolutely put his finger on is that when we stop for long enough, and of course most of us in most of life have no time at all to stop. In fact, maybe Sundays is pretty much the only little gap we might get in these few minutes with the children somewhere else and not work to go to and just a few moments to sort of take a breath that when we stop for long enough and we consider the reality of our own hearts, that we realise that given, if you like, the wrong circumstances, the wrong upbringing, the wrong context, we are capable of great evil. We don't want to think of it like that. We want to... Every society demonises certain types of behaviour and keeps them at an arm's length and say, well, they're just of a different breed. We could never be like that. But down through history, people have recognised there is a darkness at the heart of human beings. Alongside incredible light, alongside incredible self-sacrifice and heroism and and love, there is this darkness that we recognise in our more realistic moments. And what Paul is saying is, you need to recognise the darkness at the heart of human beings, because otherwise you will not realise the remarkable thing that Jesus did on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus took the entire darkness of the world on him. He allowed it to do its worst. And because it gives us a motivation for how we then should live in the light of that work of Jesus. Because we don't want to live like that anymore. We, don't, we, don't, we, we want no touch of darkness in our lives. 
So Paul, so far, has given us a taste of the spread of sin, of its many various types and, and, um, and clothes, if you like. He's given us a taste of the, the power of sin, just how dark the human heart can be. But he also wants us to realise the predicament that sin puts us in. And if anything, this is the most uncomfortable bit of all. We don't like this language at all. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Boy, if there's anything that we struggle with more in the Bible than God's wrath, I don't know it. It's the toughest thing to talk about in our culture in our day, because we see that, that we feel that this idea of God being wrathful belongs to a different age. Those of us maybe who don't know our Old Testaments very well think, well, that's the Old Testament God, not the New Testament God. Maybe those of us who think of religion as a thing that happened back then and we're in a different place now say, well, that's sort of, that's old-style religion. But I think that's to simply misunderstand what the Bible talks about when it talks about the wrath of God. This is not simply God losing his patience and getting cross. That's looking at it from my perspective as a parent that gets cross sometimes. That, that's, that's that sense of, do you know, you've tipped me over the edge now and now the red mist is descending. That's the, you know, I've been standing in this queue or sitting on this phone for this long and now I'm cross. Now you're going to see the teeth. There's nothing of that in this description of God's wrath. Instead, in the Bible, God's wrath is his implacable opposition to sin because he loves you too much to not feel that way. His implacable opposition to sin, because he loves you and the world that he's made too much. Imagine if somebody had done something terrible to somebody you love. They were caught, put in the dock, admitted it, and let off. That sense at a gut level, right from deep within us, of a sense of injustice, of the sense of that which is done, which is wrong, sin, the Bible would call it, must be spoken of as it really is, must be judged, must be punished. Because otherwise, what we're saying is we actually don't care about this person who is the victim. We don't care about what was done without judgment. Without wrath, actually what we're saying is we just don't care. But of all the people that you will ever meet, God cares about those whom he has made with such a fiery love that he simply will not be turned back. God's wrath is an expression of his love because it is against, it's an implacable opposition to all that destroys human beings, that destroys your life and my life from the inside out, that destroys relationship, that destroys those who are vulnerable, that destroys our world because of its injustice. Wrath is an expression of his love. And that's the position we were in, but for Jesus. Is there any good news? Of course there's good news. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then verse 8, for you are now light in the Lord. In yourself, darkness. In the Lord, you're now light. So live that way 
live as children of the light. A right understanding of sin both helps us to see that in Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice to God, standing in our place, taking the darkness of the world on him and in him, he has made for us a new way. He's brought us out of darkness into light. He's brought us out from underneath the right wrath and punishment of God and into a place of forgiveness. He's brought us out from being excluded from God's family to being adopted into it. That's what he's done. That's what we celebrate. That's the essence of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, recognising that that's what we're receiving. And so, says Paul, here's your motivation. Why on earth, says Paul, would you want to live the way that you've had to be forgiven from, the, the way you've had to be rescued from? Why would you go back to it? Instead, he says, since you are light in the Lord, verse 8, therefore, walk that way. Live as children of the light. It would, like, it would be like being cured of some terrible disease, but carrying on living as though you have it. It would be like being adopted into a new family, but living as though you're still on the outside looking in. It would be like being given citizenship in your new country of, uh, of home, but living as an outsider. Live as children of the light, because that is what you are, says Paul. It's good news. You have a new life to live. God's Holy Spirit living in you, helping you to live that way. Live as children of the light. Not out of duty. Not out of guilt. Guilt's been dealt with. Not out of fear. Jesus took all of it on himself on the cross. Simply out of gratitude. And out of the reality of who you are and who who I am. In two weeks' time, when people are baptised and confirmed, actually one of the things that they're doing is standing up in front of us all and saying, I choose, as far as I'm able, and with God's help at work in me, I choose to live as a child of the light. I choose to live who I really am, having been forgiven and well-loved. We're going to pause for a moment. And just take a, a moment of quiet as we think about the darkness that is still in us. Those things that trip us up, that still make us live as if we are still in darkness. The words that come out of our mouths that, if we were standing there listening, would make us wince. The attitudes of our hearts that simply have no place in us. The things that we do that destroy relationship the life that I live that has me at the centre of it. And we come to Jesus, the one who lived and died and rose again, that we might have the light of life. And we ask that his light would shine in us and through us and would help us to live a life of gratitude, of grateful obedience not out of guilt or duty or fear, but simply thankful that we have this new life to lead. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May it be so in the life we live this week, and every week as we follow him. In Jesus' name. Amen.